Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show. We are broadcast live on Mondays on the Variety Channel at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And then we are rebroadcast on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern and noon Pacific on the Health and Wellness Channel of VoiceAmerica.com. And today we are talking about something that unfortunately is alive and well in our country, and that's, um, that's racism. That's how do we really look at race in our culture. My guest is Margaret Hagerman. Her book is White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Margaret Hagerman is a sociologist and she shares surprising answers from the two years she spent immersed in the lives of white children in upper middle class white families in a medium sized Midwestern city. From ongoing observations of 36 white boys and girls, ages 10 to 13, as they went about their everyday lives and numerous conversations with both the children and their parents, Margaret Hagerman offers eye-opening insights into how white kids learn about race and why that matters to the future of America. Wow. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it really, really is important. Um, You know, you say, yes, black lives matter and racism in America is real. And we really have to take a look at, you know, how we view others through the color charge lens. And what are white affluent parents teaching their white children? And even in liberal and anti-racist families, how do white kids come to see black and brown people is different? So let's talk about that. Margaret. It sounds Um, good. Yeah, talk about how you decided to do this project. How did it evolve? So when I was in graduate school, I was doing all kinds of reading on the topic of racial socialization, which is basically a term that we use in sociology to talk about both the verbal and the behavioral practices that parents use when they communicate with their children about race. And most of the literature that I came across was focused on how parents of African-American children prepare their kids to go out and live in a world where they could potentially face racism or discrimination or prejudice. And so I was really interested in that work. It's really, really powerful. And I started thinking about how white children learn racism. So, you know, at the same time that parents of black children are teaching them how to combat racism in their everyday lives, I was really curious about how white children are learning potentially to, you know, maybe inflict racism in their everyday lives. And so that was what really got me started on this project. How did you find the students? So I conducted an ethnography, as you mentioned, and I moved myself to a community. I did not live there previously. And I tried to immerse myself into the community. I spent time where where the families that I wanted to study spent time. And I was able to build relationships with some of the parents who then connected me to other parents. And so in the end, I was able to come across 30 families that were willing to participate. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed their children. I observed them in their everyday lives. I went to their birthday parties and their Boy Scout events Mm -hmm. and, and all kinds kinds of activities. So, yeah. Mm. Why do you think it's important that upper middle class white parents talk to their kids about what it means to be right, you know, white in a racially divided country? 
So I think one of the big findings from my research is that white children, regardless of whether their parents are talking openly about race or not, they are learning about race in their everyday lives from all kinds of different places. And so, you know, when their parents do things like avoid particular parts of town or when they lock the doors in certain neighborhoods or when they discourage certain uh, friendships at school, you know, all of these kinds of behaviors are sending children really powerful messages, not only about other people, but also about their own position in um, a racial hierarchy or or in our society. And so I think it's important that um, there's more thought kind of put into this by parents in terms of both what they're saying to their children, but then also Mm. what they're doing and how they're setting up their kids' lives. What did you find? What were some of the things that you found when you did this research with the reactions of white students to other races? So um, some of the things that I, some of the differences that I noticed, and it's important, I think, to, to understand that in my study, I found that there was some big variations across these white parents. So some of the white parents in this community opted to live in predominantly white neighborhoods, send their children to predominantly white schools, and basically live a predominantly white life. And so for those children, they didn't really come into contact with kids of color very often. Um, and, and so most of their ideas about race were, sh- were shaped by um, either things that their parents said sort of in passing or in more subtle ways, maybe racially coded ways, but then also from things like, like the media, TV, um, the news, and so forth. And that was very different than kids that were growing up in a more integrated space and going to a more integrated school who, you know, had, had meaningful friendships with kids of color. Mm. Um, certainly it was not perfect. There were all kinds of dynamics involved with that. But I did see some pretty powerful differences in, in right. sort of interracial contact. So the the students that were not exposed to children of other races and were getting most of their information from their parents or the media, what what were you seeing there? What were the reactions? What were their beliefs or behaviors? So it was really interesting because many of these children told me when I asked them during the interview part of my project that they did not think racism was a problem in America anymore. They did not. They said they did not notice race, that, that racism is not a problem in their community, and so on. And yet, when I spent time with them, especially when they were hanging out with their friends, there were all kinds of moments where these kids were absolutely talking about race and noticing racism. Um, and in fact, at other moments in the project, the kids, these same kids would ask me questions like, you know, about, give me an example. About different, yeah, uh, yeah, give an so example. They would, they would ask me questions about um, whether or not black kids could have a sunburn. They would ask questions about hair. They would ask questions about um, whether or not something was racist. That was a really big thing that they were concerned about. And I found that they actually had a lot of unanswered questions. And sometimes they would seek out their peers' um, advice to answer these questions. And so that led, there's one moment in my book I talk about these two boys who are debating why there are so many professional black athletes in the NBA or basketball players in the NBA. And they are arguing over whether or not black people have an extra muscle in their leg, which is obviously completely absurd and and ultimately Mm. problematic. Um, And so I think that what what I show in the book is that when, when kids are not, um, spoken to openly about race and when they're discouraged from even talking about it at all, then they still have lots of questions because they live in the United States and they see how patterns around race play mm. out every day. Mm. Do you think, uh, and this is a loaded question, so I'm just going to ask it sort of generally, do you think what's going on in our country right now with racism um, has exacerbated this, has made it worse in terms of what kids are feeling and seeing? 
Well, it's interesting. I am actually conducting some new research right now, and it's a little too early for me to talk about some of the findings, but I am talking to kids in the moment, like in the present moment, um, both in Massachusetts and also in Mississippi, about what they think about racism in the current political moment. And Mm -hmm. I'm finding some really striking patterns in that data, and I think it really speaks to some of the data that's in this this new book project, um, uh, my new book. Um, And I, I definitely think there's a lot of variation. I think that um, in my book, I see some evidence of some variation, and then now in this new data, I have children who are telling me that, um, you know, they're, they're, they think that, for example, some of the rhetoric used by the president is explicitly racist, and some of the kids don't care, and I thought that, that's really striking, and I'm kind of exploring that, like, like yeah, I know it's racist, but I don't really care, which is very different but, than some of the other kids who are like, oh, that's racist and it's bad. Do you think those comments, those two different opposing comments, would be reflections of what the parents are feeling and saying? Well, I think that's interesting. And one of the other major points of my research that I find, or one of the other findings, is that oftentimes kids are influenced by their parents when it comes to their racial perspectives, at least the kids in my study. But sometimes they also challenge their parents. And so I think it's a more complicated and nuanced process. I definitely think that, particularly in terms of how parents set up their child's lives, they play a big part in shaping how the kids are then thinking. But I think it's important to recognize the agency of young people and how they are participating in making sense of things. So, so I guess my answer is I think it's I think it's complicated, um, you know. But but I think that, that to some extent, sure, the parents influence the kids. Hmm. So we have a couple minutes before break. So let's talk about kids who are growing up in families that don't talk openly about race or acknowledge its impact. How do they then, you know, learn about race? Right. So for parents that are raising their children according to what I, I refer to as a colorblind approach, these are parents who, like you said, they don't want to talk about race and they, they think that talking about race is racist. In fact, some of the kids are learning that from their parents and learning that from interacting with their other friends. But yet these children still have all kinds of ideas about racism and race. And I think that, um, you know, they're learning this through a number of different places. And this is what my book sort of documents. So everything from the schools they attend and the kinds of people they see around them um, to the media they consume, to their friendships, even to travel experiences when their parents take them to different parts of the country or different parts of the world. Um, and, and even even things like, um, you know, interacting with their, maybe their grandparents or other, or siblings or other people in their mm-hmm. family. Um, for example, one of the things I talk about is private schooling. And so for many of these children, they attend almost exclusively white private schools. And in doing so, I, I ask them, well, what do, you, what do you think about being a private school kid? And many of these children tell me that they think that they're smarter and they're better and they're going to be a better leader in the future. And so I think that even though these are not explicit messages about race, I think they're tied into how kids are understanding inequality and their own position in the world as somebody with power and, and, and privilege. Mm. All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more to Margaret Hagerman. Her book is White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. And when we come back, we're going to talk about social media and the news media and television and how does that shape children. And then what can we do about this or what's the solution? What are things that Margaret would suggest based on her research that parents and schools can do to help children understand race and not be colorblind about it and for us to embrace each other. You're listening to The Patricia Raskin Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. We'll be right back with Margaret Hagerman right after the break. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. And we are talking to Margaret Hagerman about her book, White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a racially divided America. Margaret Hagerman is an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University, and she shares surprising answers from the two years that she spent immersed in the lives of white children in upper-middle-class white families in a medium-sized Midwestern city. And they ranged from 10 to 13, 36 white boys and girls. And so we're talking to Margaret about insights, what we can learn. So welcome back, Margaret. Thank you. Um, tell us about how social media and the news media and the TV are shaping white children's view on race and racism, regardless of what Absolutely. parents might teach them. Right. So for many of the parents in my study, they often had the news on in their children's lives in some capacity. So either the radio was on when they were driving to soccer practice or the television was on while they were cooking dinner. Um, and, and I think that oftentimes the parents thought that the children were not paying attention to the news. But in fact, um, in talking to the kids, many of them really were, and they wanted to know what was going on. Um, some of the children were very passionate about current events. They wanted to go to school with, with information that they could use to argue with their teacher or argue with their friends or other kids. Um, and so I think sometimes we, we underestimate how much kids are really interested in what's going on. 
on um, in our world, whether it be politically or socially or, you know, kind of current event-wise. I also found parents who used um, movies and television sometimes as ways to communicate different ideas to their children, whether it be a documentary about a subject that the kid was interested in or whether it even be in more of a problematic way, in my opinion, like using the, the movie The Help, which has been talked about. Yes. Um, you know, as, as having lots of problematic nature in terms of the representation of history and centering the white character and on and on. Um, but anyway, parents using films to try to communicate something about racism to their children. And so it's mm-hmm. complicated and nuanced, but it definitely plays a role. Margaret, what do you see? First of all, do you see hope? And if you do, what are the things that you think that parents and children and educators can be doing to um, reduce this divide and, and embrace uh, people of different of, of of all faiths and races and nationalities. Yeah, so that's a really big question, and you know, on the one hand, if I'm honest, my findings do not leave me particularly hopeful, um, mm-hmm. or at least hopeful about the role that parents and and kids who are who are white and also affluent um, may play in dismantling structural racism. And I think this is because for many of the parents in my book, even those who identified as anti-racist they're still operating within a society where in order to be a good parent, you're supposed to give your kids the best of all the things. And mm-hmm. so when they do that, when they give the kids the best math teacher, the best soccer coach, and the best orthodontist, you know, they're, they're ultimately conferring some advantages to their children. So even though they want to also at the same time be anti-racist or work for equality, you know, because of how our society is set up at the structural level, it's very difficult for individuals to navigate that in a way that that kind of maps onto what their ideals are. Um, But with that being said, on the other hand, I did come across a number of children in this study who especially, I went back and re-interviewed them in high school. And when they were in high school, there were some, it was not the majority, but some who were really engaged in doing meaningful work in their schools, their community, and even in their family of challenging their, their family members about things. And so I, you know, again, while they're not the majority, I do think that there were some children that had been given the language and the tools to talk openly about race, to identify racism when they see it, and then the experience to actively challenge it. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, there are some great education programs out there that, that can maybe work with, um, with families and with, with young people to, to try to not just build awareness about racism in America, but to actually build empathy and to build some sort of commitment, some, you know, desire to really work against these forms of inequality. And what would you suggest? Would you suggest more integrated schools? Would you suggest integrated after-school programs? All of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different um, things that different people are trying, and there's research about, you know, programs that work better than others. Um, but I think that, you know, I'm talking mainly to, about parents, and I think that, that really, maybe it sounds kind of basic, but I think the best answer I can give is that I really think parents need to think about the fact that all children in our society are worthy of their consideration, right? It can't just be about giving your own kids all of the best educational opportunities and resources. I think it has to be about thinking more collectively about all of our children and how, you know, we want to, you know, be good citizens, more, maybe sometimes more than just good parents to our own children. Mm. Um, tell us a story of, in your book, just give us a synopsis of, you know, um, a story of maybe a student that learned something new, that opened their eyes, uh, one of those stories. Sure. Um, so there's lots of stories in my, in my book. Um, but one of the, one of the things that um, I, 
was really struck by, when I went back and re-interviewed these kids in high school, there had been a really horrific um, shooting of a black teenager by a police officer in their community. And I was really struck by the both the, the um, polarized responses from these kids. Some kids were very much, um, you know, uh, horrified by the event and were calling for systemic change and whatnot. And then other kids were, were really, you know, not, they are saying it didn't have anything to do with race and they were, you know, drawing on sort of this all lives matter kind of thing. And so I really saw this tension between the kids. And um, what I was really struck by were some of, the ch- some of the kids who were critical of what had happened really got together with their peers of color at the local high school, and they, ch- and they had a, a walkout and a protest. And it, mm. what I was so impressed by was that, that some of these children told me that, that they wanted to, like, stand in the back because they wanted their peers to, you know, this was their peers' protest and that they wanted to be there to support their friends rather than to try to be the leader. And I thought that was really important because I think oftentimes the anti-racist work, the literature shows that white people often put themselves at the center of that work. And I was mm-hmm. really impressed by these children, or really teenagers at this point, in their, in their understanding that they could be, you know, they could support their friends in ways that don't have to put them at the center. So that's one story maybe that is kind of inspiring. Mm. Mm. It is. It is. What about a, an inspiring story with a parent? Anything there? Um, yeah, I mean, so again, the parents, you know, oftentimes I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit critical of them just because they talk about, you know, they, they have really good intentions, many of them, but then they unintentionally reproduce some of the very things that they're trying to challenge by giving their children extra tutoring or extracurriculars or things like that. But I was, there were some parents that I thought were really, um, you know, really trying their best. They, I, there was one parent who refused to drive her kids to extracurricular activities, which I thought was really funny because in this community, all the kids go to all kinds of events and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but she thought it was too much for the kids. But, you know, I was really impressed with how she made talking about race just like an, like an, it was almost like just a part of everyday life. She didn't make it, mm-hmm. a, you know, a really sensitive topic. She, she normalized talking about racism with her children. Mm-hmm. And I was really impressed by that because, mm-hmm. you know, I think it demonstrates um, a thoughtfulness and, you know, um, mm-hmm. sort of a more um, direct approach than some of the other parents. Margaret, why is this such a passion for you? Did you grow up with this? Did you grow up with more uh, racial equity and tolerance? Um, you know, where's where's your sort of your passion behind it? Well, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a community very similar to the one that I studied. I'm white, and my um, I come from a family that had economic privilege. Um, but I had a lot of experiences, I think, growing up that that really showed me about, you know, sort of the disparities in terms of where I lived and then the next town over from where I lived, for example, um, as well as having really meaningful relationships with people of color and, um, you know, sort of, you know, watching them experience acts of discrimination and racism. And, um, yeah, I think it's just a combination of different things that happened in both my childhood and, and teenage years. And then, honestly, having some, some really amazing professors in college that opened my eyes and kind of gave me some new things to think about. Um, I think it's sort of a combination of all, all of that. Mm, great. What would you like to leave our listeners with? What is your message for your book, White Kids Growing Up in Privilege in a Racially Divided America? I think that the most important lesson of my book is um, this kind of phrase that I keep using, actions speak louder than words. And I think that what I mean by that is that 
parents can say that they're not racist. They can say that racism doesn't matter. They can say all kinds of things. But what ultimately teaches children about race, and white children in particular, is what parents do and how they set up their kids' lives mm-hmm. and the kinds of experiences they provide or that they don't. And I think that's something that parents could, could be thoughtful about. Mm, very good. And tell people how they can get your book and if you're doing speaking or workshops. Sure. So I have a website. It's margarethakerman.com. Um, and then the book is available on Amazon and then also at the NYU Press website. Okay. And again, uh, the website, please. What's the name of the website? Sure. It's um, margarethakerman.com. Okay. Oh, I, I'm not sure I said your name correctly. Hagerman. Okay. Oh, so it's again, okay. The, Everyone says it differently. <laughs> so again, the book is White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. I really appreciate you coming on the program, Margaret. I, I really do. And, and um, want to keep posted of the new book that's coming out. When will that be ready? Oh, I still have to work on that a little bit more. <laughs> Well, do let us know. All right. Again, Margaret Hagerman, and the book is White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Thanks, Margaret. Stay on the line for a minute. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. All right, folks. uh, That wraps up our first interview right here on voiceamerica.com. Stay tuned. We have another interview in our second half hour of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.